Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnosis. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. For this very special episode from our World IBS Day webinar, this podcast episode features the presentation presented by Dr. Darren Brenner, discussing IBS mimickers, what to look for, what warning signs and red flags might be present that would indicate further evaluation for patients presenting with IBS symptoms, and things to avoid when working with patients who have IBS or IBS mimickers. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me to speak to you on World IBS Day. I like to say that this day is near and dear to my heart. I'm not shy about irritable bowel syndrome. I treat it, I research it, I write guidelines on it, and I've lived it for the last 25 plus years. So those things you're all experiencing, I can certainly empathize and, and relate to what you're going through. And I think it's interesting some of the topics that you mentioned will be coming up in the next couple of months because I think we're going to superficially gloss over some of those this evening. So for the first time in my career, I think I'm not bringing up the rear, which is what I take care of and do best. I get to talk first, and I'm going to be talking about IBS and IBS mimickers, or are they mimickers, or are they actually causes of symptoms that look like IBS, or can I confuse you any further? Well, I hope by the end of the evening, that'll make a little bit more sense and have a better understanding of what we're thinking about when you as practitioners are seeing these individuals or as patients are coming to see us and what's kind of going on in our minds when you're giving us our histories and we're starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Let's see. There we go. So I think the best place to start is with a definition of irritable bowel syndrome because that's where the framework of all this is coming from, right? And I think many of you have probably seen this before. These are the Roman four criteria for irritable bowel syndrome and where that, remember, pain has to be present. Pain is the sine qua non of irritable bowel syndrome. If there is no pain, there is no IBS. Now, why have I said that three times in just a little bit different way in the last five seconds? It's because I see people referred to me all the time who do not have abdominal symptoms, but have been classified as having irritable bowel syndrome. So this one must be there. Remember that. And if the pain is present, it's associated with at least two out of three other symptoms. Some change in visceral perception with defecation. Putting that more simply, the pain either gets better or worse when you have a bowel movement, and or when the pain is there, it's associated with a change in stool form or stool frequency. Now, those of you who are familiar with, especially the practitioners with the criteria, we say these symptoms have to be present for the last three months with symptom onset more than six months before making the diagnosis. But I see people all the time who come to my practice and say, well, Darren, you know, a month and a half ago, I went on vacation. I went to spring break to Mexico and I got sick and I've been sick ever since. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, it's pretty obvious you've had post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, but I've never said this to my patient. 
your symptoms have only been there for six weeks. So you know what? Suffer for another four and a half months. And if your symptoms are still there, we'll talk. So the symptom profiles and these longevity types of classifications have been modified. And what you're seeing here on this slide is now the clinical definition of irritable bowel syndrome, where we've taken those time guardrails away. And we can say if you meet criteria and it's impacting your daily activities and or your quality of life, and we as practitioners are pretty confident that this is irritable bowel syndrome, we can make that diagnosis and move forward. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, can we do this? Can we make a confident diagnosis without these time constraints? And my argument had been before these new criteria, definitively yes. So what I'm showing you here are Darren Brenner's eight simple rules to making an accurate diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Now, I think many of you as patients may have been frustrated. It took you three, four, five, 10 years to get the diagnosis. Maybe you're online tonight because you haven't received a concrete diagnosis and you want to hear from me what I use as established criteria. Well, here are my criteria. And I find it shocking. I say this all the time because it takes the average person with irritable bowel syndrome four or five years. And you see on average four to five practitioners. And I'm now telling you I, I need about four to five minutes to make the diagnosis for you. So I've broken the eight questions into different profiles because I consider the first three questions, the ruling questions, and they're very simple. They're the symptoms we just discussed with respects to room criteria. Do you have pain? If the answer is no, move on. It's not irritable bowel syndrome. If the answer is yes, move on to the second question. Does the pain get better or worse with a bowel movement and or when the pain is present, is there a change in stool form or frequency? If you answer yes to these questions, congratulations. That took about five seconds for me to read out to you, but you're 37.5% of the way to an accurate diagnosis of irritable bowel. The five other questions are what I like to call the rule out questions. The first one, I don't even have to ask. Are you over the age of 50? If you're over the age of 50, irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. Is this an acute change? Is there unexplained or unintentional weight loss? Is there family history of colon cancer, celiac or inflammatory bowel disease? And do you have recurrent bleeding or evidence of anemia? Now, if you answer yes to the first three and no to the final five, I always ask my colleagues when I'm live, what do you think the accuracy of these eight questions is for a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome? And usually it falls in the range of 50, 60, some people will get up to 70 to 75%. But the reality of the situation is based on older Rome criteria and prospective studies, these eight questions have a diagnostic accuracy of about 98%. Now think to yourself, with the clinical studies that are out there, the diagnostic tests, where do we identify this level of accuracy? Not very often, right? I always tell people when they come in for screening colonoscopies, we have a miss rate of 5 to 10%. So the diagnostic accuracy there of a colonoscopy for colon adenomas or colon cancer is 90 to 95%. So putting that in perspective, these criteria have a higher accuracy than a colonoscopy does in a screening setting. And we should be able to define irritable bowel syndrome because it's a very common disorder. If we use strict research criteria, it affects about 5 to 8% of the U.S. population. If we use more clinical criteria, 10 to 15%. Now think about that. I always like to put this in perspective because visuals are better than numbers. What I should put on this slide is a picture of Michigan Stadium. I think Megan Real knows this one very well. But Michigan holds 116,000 people, okay? 
So think about that. If I'm at Michigan and I'm watching a game because I'm an alum from the University of Michigan, and one out of every seven to 10 people in that stadium has irritable bowel syndrome, how far do you think I have to move my neck or even my eyes to identify people with IBS? And in the primary care world, this is the seventh most common diagnosis made because, and I find that shocking because I think about what PCPC, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, heart disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, pain syndromes, blah, 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 the list goes on and on. So how does IBS become the seventh most common diagnosis? Well, I like to think about IBS along a pendulum and I like to show the pendulum in the middle because the pendulum springs both to the left and both to the right. And in both directions, the pendulum is wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at some older studies from the GI societies, and we ask practitioners, GI practitioners specifically, how you define irritable bowel syndrome, up to three quarters of GI practitioners say IBS as a diagnosis of exclusion. And if we were playing the family feud, that would get a big red X that is absolutely positively wrong. What concerns me more is that up to a quarter of IBS experts say the exact same thing. And that is not true. On the flip side, everything's irritable bowel syndrome. If you walk into the office and you're a young woman and you're a little bloated and you're a little constipated, you'll get a diagnosis of IBS-C and you will carry that diagnosis for the next 30, 50, 60 years of your life. And I'm going to show you in the next couple of slides why that doesn't work. So it's not a diagnosis of exclusion. It's not all IBS. Use my eight questions. And if the eight questions work, then you want to subcategorize based on subtype because it's your subtype that leads to how we treat. And while there are four major categories, the vast majority of us will fall, 95% of us will fall into one of the three categories that I'm going to show you here. So there's irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. I make this very clear to my patients. Do you pass things that look like milk duds and baby roots more than a quarter of the time? and chocolate pudding, chocolate mousse, or chocolate mi milk less than 25% of the time. IBSD is the flip side. Are you in the pudding, mousse, milk side without the hard ones? And those that have the mixed subtype pass both of these more than 25% of the time. And again, it's important that we categorize based on this because this is how we treat the symptoms. Diagnosis of exclusion, really? Well, here are the diagnostic studies that we recommend once you've made a di uh, diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And on the IBSC side, you can see in terms of diagnostic testing, what do we recommend? Absolutely nothing. We recommend you treat. And if you treat and it doesn't work, then we recommend that you refer for specific physiologic testing. I'll come back to this shortly. On the IBSD side, we want to rule out celiac because celiac is a mimicker. But celiac causes heart disease and liver disease and miscarriages and infertility and cancer. And we don't want to miss cancer, so we recommend this one. We also want to rule out inflammatory bowel disease. Why it is the number one reason somebody who presents with IBS symptoms gets a colonoscopy is to rule out Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. But you can now rule those out using my eight questions. If you get a fecal calprotectin level that's less than 40 or a CRP that's less than 0.5, because you'll be missing inflammatory bowel disease less than 1% of the time. So these are the tests that are needed. No more, no less. And I can do this in the first clinic visit and have these answers within 24 hours for my patient. And I will tell you that the accuracy I showed you of about 98% goes up to 99 to 99.5% with these studies. So let's talk about mimickers. And I just want to start with IVSC because this is the average patient I see in my clinic. 
Dr. Brenner, Darren, I've had IBS-C symptoms for the last 30, 40, 50 years. I've tried every medication that was available back then. And every time a new medication comes out, I try it and it fails me. Why is this happening? And the answer is because not all things constipation are irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. So when I think about the constipation spectrum, I break it into two major categories. The first category is getting the food from my mouth to my rectum, which is the last reservoir of stool. And if things don't move quickly enough, then you need something to help. You need a bulldozer. And the bulldozer for all the patients that are on the line tonight are all the laxatives, whether they're over-the-counter by prescription that you've tried and it failed you. Because when the stool gets down to the rectum and it stretches the rectum and the rectum says, I have no more vacancy and this is no bueno, the rectum sends a signal to your brain that says, I need to get this out because I'm looking up the conveyor belt and there's more coming my way. And the brain takes a look down at the rectum and says, you're right, I got to help you. And the rectum helps by giving you the urge to go to the bathroom. But when you get that urge to go to the bathroom, you have to move two muscles in your pelvic floor. One is called the external anal sphincter. The other one is called the puborectalis. And these form a door at the bottom. If you know how to move these muscles, congratulations, you'll open that door. You'll have this great space. And for those of you who are familiar with the Bristol stool scale, you will get those perfect S-shaped stools or sausages that you want. But in many cases, for many patients who present with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, they can only open the door a little bit. So they present saying, I'm passing pellets. Or they come in saying, I'm passing pencil-thin stools. And they type in thin strip stools or pencil-thin stools to Dr. Google. And lo and behold, what do they get? A diagnosis of cancer. And it freaks them out. That is not what's normally going on. So if the door doesn't open, you will not get the stool out. And that's very important. Because if the door at the bottom isn't working, that is the rate limiting step. And if you can't get those muscles in the bottom to fire and relax, you're not going to be able to go to the bathroom because there is not a single medication. Forget GI, forget cardiology, forget allergy that is going to make those muscles move. And here's the reason why. The muscles in the bottom are skeletal muscles. Just like if you were running and you pulled up limp because you tore your hamstring or your quad or you're a pitcher in the major leagues. If a patron throws a 100-mile-an-hour fastball to the plate and then can't raise his arm and goes into the trainer and says, I can't raise my arm, believe me, the trainer is not going to take a laxative and rub it on that, on that pitcher's shoulder. If a, pitcher, sorry, if a pitcher tears the rotator cuff, guess what happens? They get an MRI, the tear is obvious, and the, and the orthopedic surgeon is going to say, I'm going to refer you for physical therapy and biofeedback. Now, why is that important? Because all the muscles I'm showing you here are skeletal muscles, including the muscles in the lower right-hand corner. If you can't move a skeletal muscle, the treatment is physical therapy and biofeedback. So if you're a patient and you've gone to your doctors over and over again and the laxatives aren't working, you need to go back to your doctor and say, Hey, Dr. So-and-so, I think I've got a mimicker and I think it may be a problem with my pelvic floor. Can you test that? Because the laxatives are going to fail and this is the reason why. On the IBSD side, we know there are lots of different things that cause IBSD symptoms. So what I tell my patients is when I think about IBSD, I don't think about it as a single entity, but multiple etiopathogenic mechanisms that trickle down to the same symptom profile. And in 2023, we have become very, very good at treating global symptoms, but no matter what medications we give, 
our numbers needed to treat fall in the 8 to 12 range, which means that if I give 8 to 12 people the same medication, one's going to get better. So how do I get around this? How can I better serve my patient population since I know there are lots of factors that cause this problem? Well, I use the algorithm on the right. No longer do I care so much about the symptoms because if I try medication to take care of the symptoms, I cut off the tail of the dragon. And in many cases, that's going to piss the dragon off. It's going to turn its head, breathe fire, and turn me into a human s'more. So the best way to overcome this problem is not to cut off the tail, but to go to the head. Because if I take off the head of the dragon, which includes the brain, the body and the tail die with it. So here's my algorithm. Figure out their underlying cause, come up with an appropriate diagnostic study. If I figure out what I can treat that underlying cause with, not the symptom profile, well, guess what? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. And my number needed to treat drops precipitously. And I'm going to show you some of the mimickers out there where I can do this and I can come up with very specific and finite treatments for this disorder. So here's the mimicker list that I'm always concerned about. What looks like irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, celiacs, intestinal bacterial overgrowth, disaccharides deficiencies, and bile acid diarrhea. With the exception of celiac, I'm going to go over the rest of these this evening. So let's start with mimicker number one, because everybody who's sitting down to dinner listening to this lecture wants to see what you see on the right, which is your chicken broth. May none of you, never any of you eat chicken broth again, because what you are seeing there is characteristic of what we call EPI or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And about five to 6% of individuals who meet Rome, sorry, Rome criteria for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea will meet criteria for EPI. And there are ways to differentiate these patients because these are patients that are going to come in and say, after I eat, I have diarrhea and I see differences in my stool. Practitioners, you've probably heard patients come in, patients, you probably said this, my stool floats. That is indicative of absolutely nothing. But if you walk in the door and say, every time I have a bowel movement, it looks like there's this greasy film that you see here on the right in the water. That can be indicative of fat malabsorption or what we call steatorrhea, greasy, foul-smelling, fatty bowel movements. These patients will present with weight loss. We do not see weight loss in irritable bowel syndrome. Remember, that was one of the alarm signs or symptoms that rules out IBS. They'll present with other characteristic symptoms like bloating, distension, and flatulence, or they may present with fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies because if we cannot absorb fats, we can't bring back the fat-soluble vitamins as well. This is really a disorder of the pancreas, why it's, which is why it's called pancreatic insufficiency. And we see this in patients who have cystic fibrosis, chronic pancreatitis, who have had a lot of their pancreas removed because we lose the secretion of the pancreatic digestive enzymes. And this is pretty easy to identify. Most simply, you can do what we call a Sudan stain. You get a stool sample that's diarrhea, you stain it, you can pick up the fat but realize that it is normal to lose a little bit of fat in your stool. So if the test is negative, you don't have EPI. If it's positive, then you want to quantify the amount of fat that's there. And you can do this, but this can be very difficult because we can use, or we ask you to eat large fatty meals, eat three Big Macs a day, have a large sausage or pepperoni pizza every day for three to five days and collect all of your bowel movements and then send them in. An easier way to look at this is to look at an enzyme from the pancreas called elastase. We can look for this enzyme in your stool, and if the level is low, 
then we know that you are pancreatic enzyme deficient. And we can treat you in one of two ways, put you on a low FODMAP, or sorry, a low fat diet, or give you the pancreatic enzymes, replace the enzymes you're missing. So my patients always say to me, well, how do you differentiate IBSD from EPI? Well, this is the algorithm that I use. This will be published soon. It was um, just recently uh, approved by the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology, and it's quite simple. You do a history of physical exam. You ask the three criteria that I showed you before that are the ruling criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. If they don't meet those criteria, it's not IBS, look elsewhere. If they do ask the five alarm signs or symptom, if you pick up an alarm sign or symptom and you see steatorrhea, you see weight loss, you see postprandial diarrhea, test for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency with either stool fat analyses or a fecal elastase. And if these, one of these is abnormal, you have your answer. Very simple way to differentiate these two disorders. Mimicker number two, SIBO. I hear about this all the time. Dr. Brenner, I've got IBSC, I've got IBSD. Do I have SIBO? Well, you may, because the data I'm showing you here on this slide shows that people with irritable bowel syndrome compared to normal age and gender match healthy controls are 3.6 to 6.3 times more likely to have SIBO. And that's based on breath testing. If we look overall using breath testing in the gold standard, which is quantitative culturing of the bacteria in your small intestine, about 30 to 40% of people who meet IBS Rome criteria will have evidence of SIBO. And we know that women and individuals with IBSD are more likely to have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This is the most important question. Should I get breath tested for SIBO? And the answer is, God only knows. I tell everybody, if you ask 10 GI experts, do you test for SIBO, yes or no, and why? You will get 10 completely different answers. If you go to the guidelines, they will not help you, okay? The American College of Gastroenterology SIBO guideline says we suggest testing people with irritable bowel syndrome. Now recognize they had two things they could say. They could say we suggest or we recommend. And the fact that they use suggest is a weaker level of evidence. They're saying, mm, we're hedging. And remember, these are people that are recommending for SIBO. If you go to the ACG guideline on irritable bowel syndrome, and you ask us what we wrote in that guideline, yeah, we didn't even get involved in the process. We didn't address it. We left it completely out of our guideline. If you look at the AGA guidelines on uh, testing for SIBO, back in 2009, they said, we don't know. There's no evidence. In 2019, they said, nah, we want to leave this alone. And in 2021, they said, no, we're not going to recommend it. And if you look at recent Mexican society consensus, they said, we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole either. So the guidelines do not help us in this process. If you do test for SIBO and you come up with SIBO, please differentiate, okay? Elevated hydrogen levels are consistent with SIBO. The level of hydrogen is indicative of nothing. Hydrogen does not correlate with the level of severity of symptoms. If you test for hydrogen sulfide and it's positive, i.e. your levels are greater than three parts per million, then you found IBS with diarrhea. If you test for methane, you're going to be along the irritable bowel syndrome with constipation spectrum with, again, that threshold being greater than 10 parts per million. What do we recommend for treating SIBO? At this point, all we've got are antibiotics. My primary recommendation is rifaximin. It's been shown to be safe. It has minimal systemic absorption or penetration. You can ask me questions about this later, but I do not cycle antibiotics for SIBO. 
On the emo side for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, the guideline team said absolutely nothing. We can recommend nothing. So a lot of people use Mark Pimentel's data on uh, rifaximin and neomycin. But I want you to understand the data. This data is based on about 75 people in three different cohorts. And while they did show a significant benefit to rifaximin and neomycin, we still see pretty decent responses to the rifaximin, about 56%. And we use higher doses now. So in my clinical practice, I treat everybody with rifaximin, not the rifaximin and neomycin. And I'm not really a fan of killing people's kidneys and making them deaf. The third mimicker, bile acid diarrhea. We identify this in 10 to 41% of all patients who meet criteria for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. Now we know as practitioners, when we quiz our residents, our fellows, we say, where do you expect to see bile acid diarrhea? And they say, when I have my gallbladder removed. And that's not a wrong answer. But it turns out when we look at this 10 to 41% of patients who have evidence of bile acid diarrhea meet wrong criteria for irritable bowel syndrome, they all still have their gallbladders. So there are four different types of bile acid diarrhea and irritable bowel syndrome falls into the third category. Um, I'm sorry, the second category, which is idiopathic. And in this case, it is not malabsorption of bile salts, but overproduction by the liver. And these patients present with textbook symptoms, abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating, diarrhea, urgency, just like we see for IBSD. There are a couple of tests that can be done out there but they're very hard to do. The first one's called the 75 CCAT test. Apologies, there's an extra H there that I picked up last night. This is a test that looks at bile acid malabsorption by labeling, radio labeling the bile acids. This is not available in the United States. We can do spot 24 or 48 hour fecal bile acid assays. We collect your stool and we measure the amount of bile acids. The vast majority of the time, this is done at Mayo Clinic and only the Mayo Clinic. Or there's a proprietary test where you can look for what we call fibroblast growth factor 19 or C4. C4 is a very long name you see on the slide on the left side. And the reason we can look for these is because C4 is an intermediate in the production of bile acids. And with people with irritable bowel syndrome, we expect to see elevated levels of C4 and depressed levels of fibroblast growth factor 19 because FGF19 usually reduces the production of C4. And if you're getting more C4, you're going to see lower levels of it. If you identify these patients, we can give them bile acid binding agents, and they will usually respond within 48 to 72 hours. And if you pick this up, I can tell you your number needed to treat is going to be more so in the two to three range. So again, another place where we know an underlying cause, we can test for that cause, and we can specifically treat for this disorder. Last but not least, carbohydrate maldigestion and malabsorption. And I like to stop and talk about those two terms because they're used synonymously and they really aren't, okay? Maldigestion means that you are missing the enzymes to break down more complex sugars, starch, lactose, sucrose, maltose, disaccharides into their monosaccharide building blocks because it's the monosaccharides that can actually be absorbed. Malabsorption means you have lost the absorptive surfaces or you've overridden the receptors that are available to absorb these sugars. And these are different processes that are associated with different complexes or issues. Now, what's the problem with this? If you malabsorb sugar and the sugar gets down to your colon, the trillions of bacteria in your colon say, hallelujah, thank you for bringing me to Mardi Gras. 
and they convert these sugars into all kinds of great things like hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide that can make you very gassy, very bloated, and look nine months pregnant. They can also convert these sugars into short-chain fatty acids, and short-chain fatty acids are prokinetic. So the faster things go through your GI tract, the more likely you are to present with diarrhea. I think you're sensing an irritable bowel diarrhea pattern here. The other thing they do is create an osmotic gradient. If there's more sugar in your system, your body says, that's not right. And I need to secrete water where the sugar is. You add water to something hard, you're going to make it soft. So we can see where this causes irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. We know that we need enzymes like lactase, sucrase, isomaltase to break down these complex sugars into their single monosaccharides like glucose, galactose, and fructose so we can absorb them. So if we are disaccharidase deficient, then we've got a problem because we can't digest these. What I'm showing on the left side of the slide is all kinds of different causes of maldigestion and malabsorption. I'm not going to read through these, but on the right side, you see the different types of things we can do to work this up. Disaccharidase assays. We can go into the small intestine, take biopsies, measure the amount of these enzymes that are available. And if they are deficient, that can explain why somebody isn't able to absorb the sugar. Most of us use breath tests, glucose or um, fructose, sucrose breath tests to define whether there's evidence of malabsorption and maldigestion. And in the worst case scenario, you can just do a challenge test. Overload your patient with a particular sugar and see if you make them feel miserable or the way they feel at home. If they have one of these carbohydrate malabsorption or maldigestion syndromes, easy ways to treat. Avoid them dietarily. Get rid of what's causing the problems. I'm sure Kate will talk a little bit more like about that in her slides. We have supplemental enzymes, lactate, for those that are lactose intolerance. Sacrocytase is available for people who have sucrase uh, malabsorption, sucrose malabsorption due to a lack of sucrase. And then again, if you can identify one of the underlying causes, like those you see on the left, we can treat that and that will come back. I want to make an example of one. Lots of people that present with celiac are also lactose intolerant because celiac destroys the digestive surfaces of the proximal small intestine. And within those surfaces are those enzymes. Lactase is within those digestive areas. So if you get rid of the gluten and those surfaces regrow, the lactase comes back and lo and behold, you may not be lactose intolerant anymore. So you can see the overlap there. So what can I tell you in summary other than show you pretty pictures of a, a lot of really nice frosting with eyes on it? Well, I can tell you that an accurate diagnosis of IBS can be made very simply. Eight yes or no questions with minimal diagnostic testing. At the end of the day, let common things be common. If you make the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome or you're given the diagnosis of IBS, let your practitioner treat it. If that fails, then look for some of the mimickers that we've identified. And if you identify these mimickers, we have specialized treatments that are going to significantly improve your symptoms as opposed to trying to go through the entire litany of uh, medications or therapeutics we have to treat IBS in 2023. You'll feel much better a lot more quickly. So thanks for very much for your time. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at 
TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at TuesdayNightIBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month!